If you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, we skipped chapter 6, thanks snowstorm of 2018. Um, we will not completely skip chapter 6, we'll come back to chapter 6 um, in a couple weeks, but as as God would have it, um, and not of my own devising and plans, uh, Isaiah 7 this week and Isaiah 9 next week will serve as great opportunities for us to look at how the the birth of Jesus was foretold in the book of Isaiah. And so it's just worked out well that Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, well, originally were scheduled to be this Sunday and next Sunday, and so that's why I've just skipped chapter 6, and we're going to do that in a few weeks after we get through chapter 7 and 9. But it's amazing how it, it sort of work, has worked out that way, um, and I've done some things to make it work that way after I realized we were that close to it. So, um, But it, it's just really cool how we can be looking through the Old Testament and going through a book and see how the birth of Christ is in the midst of that book, in the book of Isaiah. And so I wanted us to, to look at that. But as we look at Isaiah chapter 7, as we have been trying to do in our time in Isaiah in the last few weeks, I want us to recognize that we need to learn about Isaiah and what he writes about in context. It's easy to make a jump and a leap into our day and time and to put ourselves in his situation, to, um, to think about us and, the, and to not have the focus on Isaiah and the people he's writing to and the people he's writing about and instead make it about something that it's not. And that's a danger that we have in Isaiah chapter 7 when we're looking at how uh, a virgin giving birth is prophesied. And, and so I want us to really understand the context in which this prophecy was given, why it was so important, and, and what, it, what it does mean for people thousands of years later as we are in Isaiah. But to spend some good time in context, if if you don't get much else out from this morning, I, I want you to understand that we have to read the Bible in context. If we don't, we make it say things that it doesn't really say. We make it to mean things that it doesn't really mean. And sometimes those meanings and intentions don't end up being bad, but I don't want us to lose what's best in, in light of what might be okay or, or some level of good. I want us to look at it for what we can get best out of it, what God truly intends, what he intended for his original people that would be reading this book, and then also even for us today as he intends for us to read it and take it this morning. So Isaiah chapter 7, we're not going to read the whole chapter and then go back. We're just kind of kind of go um, a few verses at a time because there'll be some explaining that'll have to happen. So just stick with me because there'll be some history here. Um, so, you know, some of you kids are out of school for the next couple weeks, so here's a continued lesson in school type things. All right, Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Okay, so let's just go ahead and stop there and recognize who what is happening here. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, which we skipped, basically says uh, some of when Isaiah started his ministry was in the year 740 BC. So we talked about this a few weeks ago. And this was the year that King Uzziah died. So Uzziah's son is Jotham. So Jotham reigns for a few years, and then his son, 
right? Ahaz, who we start off this passage with, Ahaz, um, is now king. So we're about in the year 735, all right? Okay, everyone sticking with me so far? I know you've heard numbers, and you're like, oh man, I don't, I don't see all these numbers here in the text. Okay, so, so we're about 735 BC, and Ahaz is the king of Judah. Second note, remember, there's two kingdoms of Israel. There's the northern kingdom, which oftentimes in the prophets is called Israel. Oftentimes it's also called Ephraim, and so we'll see that in this passage. Israel and Ephraim are usually the same thing when we're looking at the prophets. Israel and Ephraim are the same thing. So Israel, the the northern kingdom, Ephraim, um, was actually the tribe. And so Joseph, if you remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Now Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He should have been one of the 12 tribes, but he wasn't. Right? Instead, he had sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim ended up being one of the named tribes of Israel. And so Ephraim was the big tribe, because Joseph was the biggest guy, the best guy. He's the one who saved, right, all of his brothers from starvation while he was, you know, second in command in Egypt. And so Joseph was really important as Israel, the nation of Israel, moved into the promised land as God had promised to them. And so Ephraim was the biggest nation. It was, became the northern kingdom whenever the kingdom split up into the northern and southern. So the southern kingdom was called Judah. Alright, so now we have Ahaz in 735 BC, the king of Judah. So he's the king of the southern nation. Now this is important because what we'll see happening here in the next little bit of verse 1 is that the northern kingdom combines with the nation of Syria to come against the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, so Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to begin to wage war against Judah. Okay, are you still with me? All right, I'm still eyes glazed over, like, oh my goodness, what is happening here? Okay, so the north is waging war against the south, but the north also has Syria on its side. So two countries versus one country, right? Not looking good for Judah and Ahaz, its king. All right, so let's start back, read beginning over in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria... And Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, okay, so Syria and Israel against Judah, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Now, what's the capital of Judah? Anybody? What's the capital of Judah? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Good. Okay. All right. So they wage war against Jerusalem, right? So that's a picture of Judah. Okay. So just like Israel and Ephraim are sort of synonymous, so are Jerusalem and Judah sort of synonymous. Okay. But Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. Okay, good. All right. So, they came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, right? So there we have that word, okay? Right? So I'm not just coming up with these things on my own. Just trying to help us understand it. Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay. Um, one thing to note here in verse 2, he says, when the house of David was told. We'll see this later in the text, but the house of David basically continued with the line of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the, the Davidic line, the line of David, so the promised covenant that God made with David, that God would establish a kingdom that would reign forever through the line of David, continued through the southern kingdom. So when it says the house of David... 
He's talking about the kings, the court, the important people in Jerusalem, the important people in Judah, the southern kingdom. And what happened? What, how does it describe them? They were told this news, and the heart of Ahaz, so the heart of the king and the heart of his people, so both the king and the people were shaking like leaves in the wind, right? I mean, the wind's blowing strong. We don't have a lot of wind here oftentimes, but sometimes we do. I mean, you know how a leaf shakes in the wind, how it blows, right? So when someone's heart is described like that, that means it's unsteady. That means they're concerned, right? I mean, whenever you get nervous, you know, you ever shake your hands, you know, when you get up in front of people and have to talk, it's like, man, I can't stop moving, right? I mean, it's kind of like that with public speaking for a lot of us. But we're not talking about public speaking. We're not talking about getting up in front of a group of people. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about power and no power. We're talking about existing on the earth and being killed and not existing on the earth. This was life and death for these people. This was whether or not this king was going to continue to be a king. This is whether or not these people were going to die at the hands of all of these foreign soldiers that are coming against them. And recognize that there are two countries combining together to fight one. And these were bigger countries probably individually than, than Judah was by itself. So you have two countries who individually by themselves are bigger than Judah combining together to try and make Judah do something that they wanted Judah to do. And this is why they joined forces because Syria and Israel were concerned about Assyria. And I know that's kind of confusing. All right, the Assyrians, all right, evil people, evil people from the east, all right, more, more, Middle east, more east than where we are in the Israel part of the Middle East, where we're talking about right now. Um, so Assyria is the problem. Okay, so we have four countries now, all right, we still, we still, have I lost everyone yet successfully? All right, so we've got Syria and Israel, they're going to battle against Judah. Why are they battling against Judah? Because they want Judah to fight with them against a fourth nation, Assyria. A foreign nation who they know is even more powerful than all of the rest of them probably combined. And the only chance they have is if all of them come together. And so they're trying to be in league all with one another so that they can fight off these foreign warriors. But Judah isn't going to... Judah isn't going to partner with Syria and Israel. Okay, all right. Let's move on. Everyone understand that mainly, mostly? Okay. So they're afraid. The people are afraid. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Basically, this is a picture of the king is trying to fortify his water supply because Syria and Israel are about to attack him. And so what happens whenever a nation attacks another nation? Well, if you cut off its water, you cut off its food, then it can't survive for very long. And so what's the king doing? He's going to prepare his defenses. He's going to prepare to make sure his water is going to last if they fall under a siege. Okay, so this is what he's doing. So his... He knows that this conflict is on its way and he's 
worried and concerned, and so he does what any king would rightfully do. He's preparing his defenses. He's preparing for this invasion. And Isaiah takes his son with him, which is significant. And a note here for us to understand and realize is names are important. Okay, especially with prophets. Names are important. We'll see that in in verse 14. But even Isaiah's son's name is important. And his son's name means a remnant shall return. Right, so he takes his son with him, and there's a reason this is put in the text. A remnant shall return. A remnant is basically a portion of something. You know, you've got a supply and you've got 100%. Well, now there's only like 10% left. Well, that's the remnant that's left. Okay, and a remnant shall return. So basically, he names his son this, which oftentimes prophets did in the Old Testament, and people did in old times all the time. Names meant something. And he takes his son with him. God tells him to take his son with him. Basically saying, look, bad things are probably going to happen, but I'm still with you. So even at the beginning, before we get to this whole Emmanuel thing in verse 14, we already have that God cares and has a plan for what's going to happen, what is happening in the midst of this war. The people are worried, right? They're shaken. They're, they're, they're concerned. They're terrified. All these people, we're going to die. You know, we're going to be conquered. But even initially, God uses Isaiah and Isaiah's kid to say, there's still hope. Okay. Verse 4. And say to him, the opposite of shaking in the wind. Right? Look at this. There's, there's four things he says. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps and of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. So he, he says, look, don't, don't be concerned about these people. You, I mean, you know what a smoldering stump is? A smoldering stump is, you know, one of those things we see on the side of the road as we're driving. You know, you see a little bit of smoke. Not much smoke, you know, and, but you know there's a fire going on. But there's really, you don't see any flames, really. It's just sort of this really small, you know, stubble on the ground that apparently probably had burned pretty well sometime in the past, but currently is not a whole bunch of anything. So that's how God describes these kings, these nations. They're really a whole bunch of nothing. I mean, you know, they're hot if you touch them, but, I mean, come on. I've seen worse, right? So he says to Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. These guys are nothing. Verse 5, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you. So God knows what they've devised. So Isaiah tells Ahaz, says, God knows what's happening here. Right? They've devised evil against you. They say, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Right? So this, again, goes back to what I had mentioned. They don't just want to conquer it and gain the territory for themselves. They want to put a king over it in their place who will do their bidding, sort of a puppet king. They want this king, new king of Judah, to do it they want to happen, which is basically to join forces with them so that they can defeat this foreign nation, Assyria. That's their plan. Conquer it for ourselves. Set up this king in the midst of it. So this is what God says. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, 
and the head of Damascus is risen. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So we already have a specific prophecy that's just been given. Basically, God says, look, king of Judah, I'm telling you that this northern kingdom of Israel isn't even going to really exist in 65 years' time. They're nothing. This coalition of kings is nothing. They're, they're just a smoldering stump. It's, it's a whole bunch of fluff. Compared to me, if, if you believe me, if you stand firm in your faith, if, if you believe what I say, you will last. You will continue. There's no need to fear. There's no need to worry. The northern kingdom, you know, and, and, and this is true. I mean, really, the initial conquering of the northern kingdom happens in 722, right? Remember what year we were in when we started? 735. Really, just in 13 years, the initial conquest of the northern kingdom is going to happen. It's not going to last. And within 65 years' time, everyone's going to be taken, basically, from the northern kingdom. There's going to be no one left. And you're worried about your life. You're worried about what's going to happen. But I know what's going to happen. I've planned these things. So, so what, does, what does happen? Um, turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 16. So go left quite a bit. Maybe halfway back to the start. 2 Kings chapter 16. So there's two places where we have the account historically of basically what happens with this Syria and Israel army that's coming against Judah. And I want us to see how Ahaz is described, and we'll recognize as we continue going back in Isaiah chapter 7, why these things are so wrong and bad, and, and why things are happening the way that they are going to happen, which is quite unfortunate. Second Kings chapter 16, and so we'll see these names again, okay? In the 17th year, verse 1, of chapter 16. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even, okay, the way of the kings of Israel is basically saying he didn't do what was right. He did bad things. Because the kings of Israel did bad things. Okay. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. In case you don't, in case you don't know what that means at verse 4, where they make sacrifices on all the high places and under every green tree, that means... They did awful, evil sacrifices. They made idols. They worshipped idols. 
they did what they weren't supposed to do. They had a temple where they were supposed to make the sacrifices to God. But instead of using that temple, instead of doing what God had told them to do, they instead did things their own way, in their own places. And they even, this king sacrificed his own son. I'm quite certain that God never wanted us to do such despicable things. Yet Ahaz did these despicable things. And that's how he's described. He did what was evil in the sight of God. He didn't do what was right. Alright, then verse 5. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, well, no, I'll skip down. Let's turn over to Second Chronicles. So go forward just a little bit. Second Chronicles chapter 28. Now, before we think that nothing bad happened to Ahaz and Judah, there was a lot of bad that happened. Some of the reason these bad things happened is because of how Ahaz was described. God didn't want to honor the kings over his people who did not honor him. And there were consequences. So we're going to see some repetition here. So we'll just read through this. Second Chronicles verse 28 starting in verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. As his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his, offer, his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Therefore, the Lord, his God, gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. For Pekah the son of Ramalia killed 120,000 from Judah in one day. All of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Not only did they kill 120,000 men, look at verse 8. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. There was a great level of defeat that happened as Syria and Israel invaded Judah. Jerusalem never fell. Ahaz was still king. Ahaz was still able to reign. But there were heavy consequences to Ahaz's wickedness. Ahaz didn't follow God. Ahaz didn't care about God. He did what was evil. He did what shouldn't have been done. And this is, when we read verses 1 through 9 in Isaiah chapter 7, as we look back at there, God desired to prove himself strong on behalf of the people who had faith in him, who depended on him, who wanted him to come and provide on their behalf. 
He wants to provide for people who recognize their need, who recognize their need for God, who recognize that they can't do these things on their own. And I think some of the reason why you have the name of Isaiah's son and why we will see in verse 14 why we have this prophecy of, look, there's going to be some hard times and bad things are going to happen, but they don't have to be this way. And God provides an opportunity for Ahaz to forego all of this destruction and defeat. But Ahaz instead did what he thought was right. Looked at himself and said, how can I make the best decision out of my own wisdom? What, what looks to be the best way to do this physically, looking at all the number of people that they have and the number of people that I have, what's my solution going to be? God gives them an opportunity to trust Him, to not fear, to say, believe in me, stand firm in your faith in me, but if you don't, you'll not be firm at all, as he ends there in verse 9. Ahaz had an opportunity, but he didn't take it. And, and, and he has this second opportunity, basically, in verse 10. So a second time, Isaiah talks to Ahaz. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So God says to the king, Look, all of these horrible things have happened. All these horrible things are going to happen. But trust me, and I will give you an opportunity. Name whatever you want. I will do a miracle that is not just a a miracle of nature, but even one supernatural. I'll do it for you. Anything you want. Make it be raising someone from the dead, right? He references Sheol, as high as heaven. Ask, and I'll do it for you to show that I have the power to come through on my promise toward you and toward this covenant that I've made with your father David. But Ahaz, verse 12 said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, this seems initially, if you were just reading this text, and you read a response like that, you would initially think, oh, this guy, you know, yeah, that's a, that's a decent response, right? Oh, I'm not going to put God to the test, because, you know, when I put God to the test, that, you know, usually doesn't end up being very well for people. I don't want to make God prove himself. But the problem is, Ahaz didn't trust God. And Ahaz, though he had an appearance of being righteous, appearance of being pious, by saying, I'm not going to put God to the test, God had already offered and said, I will do whatever, just ask for it. But Ahaz, in his stubbornness, said, no, I'm not going to ask. And so don't see Ahaz here as being this pious, religious guy who does the right thing, you know, who's been given a test and he's not going to, fail it. Instead, he's been given an opportunity and he's not going to take it, which is just another sign of the fact that he doesn't care about God. He doesn't want God to come through on his behalf. And so this is, this is what Isaiah says. This is what God says in response. Verse 13, and he said, hear then, O house of David. Again, we have that reference. So we're talking to 
this line of kings, this promised covenant that God has made with David that he would bring a dynasty, that he would bring a line where there would be a king who would rule forever. And he said, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So instead of Ahaz saying, This is the sign that I want when God has offered it, Ahaz says, No, I don't want a sign because he doesn't want to have to believe God because he doesn't already believe God. And so God says, Fine. Even though you don't want a sign, I'm still going to give you one. And so what's the sign? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So what, what, is, what does this mean? Okay, so Emmanuel means God is with us. Again, name has significance. God is with us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something miraculous, something that hasn't been done before, something that shouldn't be able to happen. This virgin, someone who is not, should not be able to have a child, is going to have a child. And his name's going to be called Emmanuel. God is with us. So, again, God gives a sign, and he gives one that says, I am still with you. I am still with my people. I still care about my creation. I am still working in this world, even though I have given this group of people everything, even though I have given this king every opportunity to do what was right, to believe in me, to trust me, and he's thrown it away, I'm still going to remain faithful to the covenant that I've made because I am a faithful God and I don't abandon my people completely. But he will abandon them in moments and for a time to an extent And that's the problem is because that's what Ahaz wanted. So he gave the people what they wanted. He gave Ahaz what he wanted. Remember back in the beginning of chapter 7, it wasn't just Ahaz whose heart was shaken. It was the people. The people were following the king. And the king being evil, it meant the people were evil. And so the people being evil, the king being evil, God says, I don't want to bless these people. Because they're meant to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. I'm meant to show my power through these people, but if these people don't want to be used, fine. I'll let them fall by the very things that they think they're not going to fall by. Which we'll see as we continue reading. And, and this, this uh, verse 15, He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So this is a reference to when he knows how to choose the evil and how to refuse the evil and choose the good, this is a reference to being coming of age, so basically between the ages of 12 and 18. When he is becoming a man, he'll be eating curds and honey. What does eating curds and honey mean? It means that he's going to be in a nomadic lifestyle. It means that he's really not going to have any any house of his own. He's not going to have any land of his own. How is Jesus described? Right? I mean, he came eating and drinking. We read that in Matthew 11 earlier. But, you know, birds of the air have nests, you know, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was a nomad. Jesus traveled. He didn't have a place to call his own. It's interesting that Jesus is described in this way. 
even in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 15, hundreds of years before. But verse 16, now note, there's a transition here, and one thing that's difficult for us to see as we're just reading through a text like this, especially on our own, without trying to do much to study it and understand it. Verse 16 transitions away from this prophetic virgin-born child. And some people think that now verse 16, we're even talking about Isaiah's son. So back to someone else that is present here. Okay, because we're back to describing the current situation that we're in in Judah. Verse 16, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay. So, some think that they're talking about Isaiah's son here and saying by the, by the time this kid gets of age, these other two kings aren't going to be anything. They're going to be defeated. And, and it's true. I mean, we can go back and read in Second Chronicles 28 and Second Kings 16 how these kingdoms fell quickly. How they didn't last. But we don't have time. And so what does he continue saying? What does God continue saying? I am going to be with you, but right now, there is going to be destruction and chaos in your land. And that's a hard thing to swallow after such a great promise. Verse 18, In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the, ha- in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day the Lord will shave with the razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, okay, this is the third time it says in that day. There are four in that days. And this day is coming... This day is now, this day is just a little bit down the road. This day is what's left of Judah. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with the hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Okay, let's, let's try to kind of zone, zone back in here. In Isaiah chapter 5, if you remember that from a couple weeks ago, He started off with a picture of a vineyard, right? And this vineyard had everything it needed to be able to prosper, to produce the grapes, the wine, the things that it was supposed to produce. But what happened? It produced foul things. It produced what it wasn't supposed to. 
it didn't it didn't do what it should have been able to to have been done. And so what did God say about that vineyard? That vineyard was going to turn into briars and thorns. The same picture that we have here at the end of chapter 7. This is what was going to happen to the land of Israel. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago about it being because of the lack of social justice, because of the lack of the people who had power, who had authority, who had wealth, giving to those in need, providing for those people who didn't have any power, who didn't have the means, who didn't have a house, who didn't have land. And so what he says there, you know, looking at that guy in verse 21, And that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. Again, this is a, a description of having a nomadic lifestyle. Why is it bad to be a nomad? Well, because God had given them this land. God had given them this promised land. He had established his people in this land so that they could be farmers, so that they could depend on the agriculture, the things that God had provided for them. But instead of having a land where they could use a hoe, right, where they could till the ground, instead they had to depend on roaming and roaming around the land. They didn't have a place to settle, to call their own. This nomadic lifestyle was not good for these people at this time. It's not what God intended for them. It's not what God wanted. But this is what God was going to bring them to. And why? Because they didn't trust God. And God wasn't going to bless the people who didn't trust in Him. But He didn't just leave it at, You don't trust me now. I'm giving up on you forever. In the midst of all of this, we have that amazing promise in verse 14 that God is with you. God still has a plan. A remnant will return even with the previous, with Isaiah's son's name. God does not give up on his people. But for the people in this time, there were consequences for their evil. There were consequences for their lack of faith. They didn't trust God. And so we stand here, you know, thousands of years later with an opportunity to see all that God has done and to celebrate how 700 years after Isaiah's prophecy, 2,000 years ago removed from us, how God fulfilled this promise in Jesus how this virgin would give birth to a son and they would call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Turn to to Matthew chapter 1 and we'll do what we can to wrap this up. Matthew chapter 1, where this prophecy is described. Again, um, as we said a, a few weeks ago, as we started going through Isaiah, One of the reasons I wanted to go through Isaiah is because it's so prevalent in the New Testament. All of these prophecies that are fulfilled that we find in Isaiah are described and we're able to understand them because Matthew helps us to understand them. People, the writers of the New Testament help us to understand them. And I want you to to catch here 
how Jesus' name is described, both Jesus and then also Emmanuel. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 21, talking about Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When I referenced earlier the fact that names mean something, did you know that Jesus' name means something? Emmanuel, I think we've heard it all, all the time because of the Christmas songs and you know things surrounding Christmas, God with us. But even Jesus' name means something. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Yahweh saves. God saves. Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy 700 plus years earlier. Not just to be with us, but to do something that we couldn't do on our own. So much happened in the Old Testament where God gave them everything they needed to survive and to thrive and to prosper, to be the people he'd called them to be, and they failed and they failed and they failed. And God eventually, when the time had come to send his son, he sent him to save them. And not just to redeem the land, right? Not just to establish the physical kingdom back on earth, but what did Jesus come to do? He came to save us from our sins. We read about how Ahaz was a wicked king who sinned over and over again, who killed his own sons, who did what was evil. We might not have killed our own sons, which many of you are thankful for this morning in the room. But we've sinned, all of us. And God has done something to provide a way of salvation for us. The same way that God has promised salvation for those in the Old Testament. Physical saving from their enemies. Our enemy is sin and death. And God did something 2,000 years ago when He sent His Son to defeat that enemy. And when we believe, when we trust that Jesus actually did conquer that enemy, when He did conquer sin and death, that it means something for us, that we can take advantage of what God did for us in Christ. That it's not just for, for those who are far away. It's not just for those who are near, but it's for all who would believe. That God is with us. That God's not a foreign God who doesn't care about His creation. God's not over there and we're somewhere else. God has come to be with us so that in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our life, in the midst of our turning from Him and following our own path, He has provided us a way to know Him and to love Him and to recognize that we don't have to fear We don't have to shake at the notion of, what am I going to do about all the sin that I've committed? What am I going to do about how I I failed God? 
all these bad decisions that I've made, all of these things that I've done that have not honored Him. God says, I'm not leaving you to yourself, but I care about you. And Jesus, my son, I'm going to send him to do something about it. And he did something about it. He died on the cross, born of a virgin. Why is that important? Because he didn't have our sin. He didn't have our guilt. And when he was put on the cross, he willingly took not his own sin, not his own guilt, but our sin and our guilt on himself. That's what's so amazing about the virgin birth is he was like us. He was a man, but... He didn't have the sin and the guilt that we had. And He took our sin and our shame and our guilt on Himself and gave us everything that was good and right that He did and put that on our account. And all we have to do is trust that, is believe that. This is what God has done and this is what we should be celebrating in this season. And, and what we as a church want to continue to celebrate. And, and the message that we want to share with people, God is not a distant God, but He is close. And, and this ministry that we did this past week, the, the ministry that we want to be a part of in this community is showing people that as we come near to them, we're, we're being a picture of God to them, where as God lives in us through His Spirit, we are near to them, we're we are seeking them the way that God has sought us. We are being His people. We are acting like Him. He's our Father, and kids act like their fathers. And so we're, we're meeting people where they are. We want to be with them. You know, um, at the expense of announcements later on, you know, we've been reading this book and we'll be discussing it on Wednesday night, this A Meal with Jesus. It's inviting people to where you are and going to where they are, meeting with them, spending time with them, being with them so that we can share this great news of salvation with them, so that we can share Christ with them, like like share it, Him with them. This is who we are as a church, this is who we desire to continue to be. In the same way that God has has been this for us. We can't save the people, but we can talk about this God who can save them, who has saved us, who's done something for them as well. So let's continue to be busy about proclaiming this message together to those around us, to those that we meet, to those that we have a chance to go out and engage with. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and for the opportunity we have to to look at your word. And there, There's so much that can be looked at. There's so much that can be described. So many facts and figures. God, I ha- Father, we pray that as, as we have all these things rolling around in our minds, help us to pause. Help us to be still. And to recognize how you have decidedly come into our midst. How you have 
sent your Son to be with us. How you are not a God who is far away, but you are a God who is near to us. That you are a God who doesn't leave us or forsake us because you are with us. And so I pray that in us you would find faithful servants who are busy about the task of honoring you, of doing your will, of being obedient. God, please use us for your glory that people would come to know you, that they would come to have faith in you, that they would experience your grace in their lives, that we would extend to them the grace that we've been extended. God, please, would you do this through us, through us as individuals, through us as families, and through us as a church in this community for your glory. God, we pray, would you do these things? Amen.